There are three million civil servants who work for the U.S. government today. Many take entrance exams, they have standardized pay scales, they work in the State Department or the Department of Energy or the Department of Homeland Security, regardless of which president or which political party is in office. Well, this definitely hasn't always been the case. For the first hundred plus years of the country's beginning, government jobs were basically handed out as political favors to people who, in many cases, had absolutely no qualifications or relevant experience. It was a system just rife with corruption and patronage. So for this episode, we're going to explore the moment in American history when that transformed or reformed under President Chester Arthur. Now I've got someone here who dove into the research for this episode with me, my colleague David Parenthold, who's a politics reporter at The Post, and who did an incredible series of stories investigating government waste. Thank you. Um, Chester Arthur, <laughs> thanks for volunteering for this one. The most obscure of all. Well, so... If anyone knows Chester Arthur today, um, it's probably as the namesake of a fictional elementary school that appeared in the 1995 um, Die Hard with a Vengeance <laughs> movie, as many of our podcast listeners have pointed out to me. In all seriousness, though, David, I think you and I both went into this episode thinking that because Chester Arthur is so obscure and because the main thing that happened on his watch was civil service reform, that this was maybe going to be a kind of dry, dense story. And we were so wrong. We were so wrong. Chester Arthur has one of the most amazing stories that I think we've heard yet in our study of the American presidency. He was the son of a Baptist minister. Then he sinks to the very sort of underbelly of New York City Gilded Age machine politics. He holds the most lucrative patronage job in the country as the collector of the Port of New York. And then at the very moment that Chester Arthur inherits the presidency and seems ready to just plunge the government into even deeper corruption, something magical and strange and completely unexpected happens. He goes from being exhibit A of corrupt machine politics to being the person who actually reforms and cleans up the system. So all it took for Arthur to make that kind of redemptive arc was the death of a president and a set of mysterious letters uh, from a woman that Arthur had never met, as we'll learn more about. So here is the story of Chester Arthur. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post. David Farenthold. <laughs> and this is the 21st episode of Presidential. I'll resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. All right, so the very basics are that Arthur was born in Fairfield, Vermont in 1829, and he was one of eight children. His father was a Baptist preacher who kept getting kicked out of parishes because he was such a fervent abolitionist. And so the family was constantly packing up and moving from town to town throughout Vermont and then throughout New York. 
And this kind of turned Arthur off from religion, but it didn't turn him off from advocating for African-American rights. After Arthur went to Union College, he moved to New York City, and he worked in a prominent law firm where one of the cases that he really gained a lot of attention for was that he defended Elizabeth Jennings, who was a black woman who sat in the white section of a Brooklyn streetcar. This was more than 100 years before Rosa Parks, and his victory in that case was something that had been, was celebrated in New York for many years afterward. It's forgotten now, but it was a big deal at the time. Yeah, this, I mean, it was the landmark case that ended up desegregating all of the trains and streetcars in New York City. Well, then during the Civil War, Arthur was he was a quartermaster general in New York, uh, which means that he basically handled all the logistics of feeding, clothing, arming a lot of the troops in New York State. A lot of administrative detail, sort of an early um, exercise of his bureaucratic. <laughs> right. The glories of bureaucracy. He yeah. was good at it even early on. Mm-hmm. So looking at this early story of Arthur's, he actually seems pretty idealistic and principled. But during this time, he does seem to show also an increasingly persistent desire to gain money, to gain power. And this is sort of what brings him into working for bigwigs in the Republican Party of New York at the time. And this is where we're going to turn to Michelle Kroll at the Library of Congress, who's going to paint a better picture for us of the personality of Chester Arthur. I'll ask you just my classic blind date question, which it's very interesting to see. Some people, some listeners love the question and write to tell me how they love it. And other ones have certainly (laughs) written to me to say that they think I should get rid of it. But um, you gave me the impression that you would have a very interesting answer to it. So I'm going to ask you what it would be like to go on a blind date with Chester Arthur beyond just the, you know, how I feel about mutton chops bit. (laughs) Well, and actually with with Arthur, because of the question that you ask, I can't tell you how often I've been thinking about dating these presidents, which I had never thought of before. But Chester Arthur, and it actually does play into his political career, so it's a legitimate question here, is Chester Arthur would be a fantastic blind date. He would be a lousy husband, but he would be a fantastic blind date. And the reasons are, and and some of this sounds very superficial, I I do understand. (laughs) But one thing, particularly when he was a younger man, he was very handsome. I mean, I kind of like the mutton chops, but (laughs) not that I would want to see them come back as a fad. But um, no, (laughs) but as a younger man, Arthur, he had very dark, dark eyes and he was tall and, and, you know, a sturdy person. I mean, many people, if they even know who Chester Arthur is anymore or have an idea of what he looks like, you know, it's later in life when he's got the mutton chops and he's sort of a, a larger man. But as a young man, he really is quite handsome and he dresses well. He really likes the finer things in life. So he likes to eat well, and he likes to dress well, and he likes his house to be nicely furnished. And he was somebody who liked to please people. He liked to get along with everybody. He wasn't, he wasn't radical in, in any way on that sense. So he would, he would be a very good person to, to court you know, he would probably take you to a, a nice meal at Delmonico's and he would show up in a in a beautifully tailored suit and he would have pleasing conversation and everybody liked him. And so that would all be fantastic. Um, the reason he would be a lousy husband or a, a less a less devoted husband or attentive husband, and this is exactly what happened with his own wife, is in his public career, all those those things that I just talked about, 
he is a party operative. That is who Chester Arthur is. When he gets into the Republican Party, he is a party man, not in the woohoo kind of party <laughs> sense, but in the, the political party sense, which means he's at the Republican headquarters all the time. And he's out with you know the people that he needs to wine and dine all the time. And so he did love he did love his wife Ellen, but you know he spent so much time being a good party man that he wasn't home, particularly when he's collector of the Port of New York. But that's part of what you need to do when you're a political operative is to to know who your know who your constituency is, make them happy, be the person that 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 gets along with everybody and be good at it. And he was. So the 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 very qualities that would make him a really fantastic blind date make him a really fantastic political operative, which means he's never home to be a good husband. So we heard a bit last week about in the Garfield episode about how Arthur was the right-hand man yeah. to the New York senator and Republican Party boss Roscoe Conkling. So what was their relationship like? Um, Conkling is a peacock. He's he's flamboyant and, and, you know, he's a good orator and he likes to be the center of attention. And he's somebody that you notice. And Arthur is somewhat in his shadow, I suppose, so whereas Conkling is the person that he's going to be giving the speeches and he's going to be, you know, the 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 public face of the New York party, it's it's Chester Arthur who's behind the scenes, who's making arrangements, who is doling out the money, who's the collector of of the the, the port of New York and is taking in money for the Republican party. He starts to sound a little like Martin Van Buren. Oh dear. To me. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I guess in the sense of... The, like the political operator, mm-hmm. a bit behind the scenes. When you say political operative, that, that often sounds very harsh but and, and kind of a hard-bitten character. But for Arthur, he seems to be a fairly sentimental person or in touch with a kind of inner romantic or an inner, inner sentiment that comes out periodically. So he writes to his, his fiance Ellen, who is nicknamed Nell, when he's out in Missouri, and, she, and he says, This is your birthday, my own precious darling, my own Nell. The remembrance came with my first awakening in the early morning, as the thought of you always does. As I kissed your dear image, darling, my heart was full to overflowing with love and prayer for you. And when I looked out and I saw it was a glad, bright morning and everything looked fresh and beautiful, I thought it a happy omen. How full of joy and happiness the world seemed to me, for I felt that you are my own Nell, that you love me. I said, I am content. I was happy and thank God that he had so blessed me. So, you know, but um, he also had, you can see a little bit about of this in, he has a, a an early friend and particularly when his friend Campbell Allen is is ill. He's really worried about him. And so he writes this letter, and this is 1850, so this is before he's um, even involved with, with Nell. And, he's, and he says, you know, we were sitting up like two owls until two and three in the morning with our pipes over the warm fire, quite satisfied with our little world within and philosophically discussing the world without laying bare to each other our mutual plans, hopes and fears, adventures and experiences. And so cozily chatting and smoking and then tumbling into bed in the wee small hours 
hours and falling soundly asleep in each other's arms. And today, of course, we would put a completely different spin on on that than what the 19th century folks would. But you know, he he had the capacity for these very intense friendships. Arthur is somebody who's very capable of emotion and tapping into that. And it's said that after Garfield was was shot, that you know he was he would he was crying, he was in tears quite a lot. Mm. And so you also have a few other documents of his, right? What came to us in addition to that one love letter to Ellen and the letters that he wrote to his friend Campbell Allen were a lot of re- bills and receipts. The bills and things. Are yeah, those interesting look to look at? Or um, Well, I think they are. <laughs> Sorry, that was a weird... <laughs> but I'm a historian. shouldn't so. have asked the question that way. <laughs> no, well, actually, um, um, bills and receipts and financial records, that's sort of the follow the money mm-hmm. to see right. where is his money going and how much is he spending and what kind of lifestyle is he enjoying. And so in this particular one I'm bringing out, you know, page after page, it's cigars. On September 22nd, he bought 200 cigars. And on October 10th, he's bought another 300 cigars. Well, he's not smoking these all by himself. So you think, okay, this he's he's spending $148 in cigars because he's providing cigars to other people. You can also look at the receipts and you know that he's he's made a lot of money. Here's a receipt from Tiffany's. And he bought a cameo brooch for two hundred and seventy-five dollars, which in eighteen seventy-four money is is going to be a lot of money. Um, okay, here's more cigars and brandy, and now he, here's the tailor bill. He's got different kind of vests and and pants and a frock coat and all of these various things. So between September thirteenth of eighteen seventy-three. And March of 1874, which is less than six months, he spent $676 at this one tailoring establishment. So he's paying attention to his appearance. He's buying, you know, elegant things. And he can do that because he made a lot of money as the collector of the Port of New York. So David and I are now joined in the studio by Scott Greenberger. He's the executive editor of Stateline. And I'm guessing, Scott, that you're probably also the only person who can say you're writing a book about Chester Arthur. I hope so. I I think think that's true, yes. (laughs) David and I will match your enthusiasm, at least, for learning about him. Um, And David's going to lead the conversation. So why don't you want to kick it off? Sure. So, Scott, why write a book about him? Why write a book though? Because no one else had. <laughs> uh, I think he's a f- he's a fascinating figure for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, he was president during a period with a lot of parallels to our own period. Uh, very often now you hear uh, all this talk about income inequality and that this is somehow a second gilded age. Well, that was the first gilded age, and it was also um, the first time where there was concern, widespread concern about this. Uh, the interplay between big business and politics, money and politics. Some of the same issues we're grappling with t- today were issues then. Arthur was thought of as a party hack. I mean, in fact, he was sort of the king of party hacks and king. a hackery on a level that it's hard for us even to imagine in our time. So describe his biggest role before he became president was collector of customs in New York City, which sounds like a really boring job, but actually was the pinnacle of hacker- hackdom. It was the best job. <laughs> so it was the best job in the federal government. It paid... 
It was the highest paying job in the federal government when you combined the salary and the cut that he got in law. And this was actually legal that every time the customs inspectors, who tended to be overzealous for obvious reasons, found that somebody had underpaid their duties, um, the collector and some of the other officers in the custom house would get a cut of the of the penalties. So there was a great incentive to find malfeasance, even when perhaps it wasn't there. Um, you had the ability in that position to reward loyal um, party uh, workers and supporters, and that was where he sort of honed his hacked them and really perfected the art. Now, we're talking about a time when there was no federal income tax. Um, and so this port of New York, people paid duties as they imported goods. That was the source of some huge percentage of all the federal government's money. Over right? half. I believe it was something close to 70 percent of all the revenue um, came through this one um, this one custom house in New York City. So it was a tremendously important job. And it's chosen basically by a political machine, a local political machine from New York State. So he had never been elected anything before. He was a lawyer, but he had no other, he had no prior training. It wasn't as if he had been an importer or had been in business and was familiar with it. The sole uh, criterion on which he was, that he got that job was that he was Roscoe Conkling's lieutenant and President Grant, who had his own ethical challenges as president, particularly during his second term, named Arthur to that position at Conkling's behest. And I'll just toss in here that Arthur's annual salary at the time, when you once you factor in all of those kickbacks, was about fifty thousand dollars. Exactly right. And as a comparison, the average skilled worker in the in the United States at the time was making about five hundred dollars a year. Wow, good so, work if you can get it. Yeah, huge, huge. And when you look back at what Arthur wrote at the time, did he feel any sort of shame about being that sort of chief hack? Oh, absolutely not. On the contrary. I mean, as a young lawyer, he had been idealistic. But after uh, um, the Civil War, he, he headed in a very different path, and he fully embraced the machine politics of the period, first under Thurlow Weed, who was the boss of New York, and then Conkling. And so he fully recognized what his job was there, and that was to dole out patronage and to strengthen the New York machine. And he had no, no uh, ethical uh, problems with, with doing that. In fact, when one of his college um, classmates, a guy named Silas Burt, who also worked at the Custom House, pointed out to him, hey, some of your associates here are really, you know, they're skimming money off the top, they're crooked, they're, you've got people in this Custom House who aren't qualified. Arthur said something like, you know, this is... I don't have any time for this goody-goody stuff. You know, I mean, this is, this is real life here. You know, uh, this is the way the world works. So how does somebody like that become the vice president? I mean, with no elected experience at all, a machine politician in New York, how does that guy get to be vice president? Well, what happened was uh, after the um, presidency of Rutherford B. Hayes, and, and Hayes was a would-be reformer, machine politicians such as Conkling were appalled by that, and they wanted a return to the Grant years, which were... Uh, horrific from an ethical perspective, terrific if you're a machine politician. So they were pushing at the um, 1880 convention for a third term for Grant. And at this convention, um, the forces supporting Grant and the forces supporting his main challenger, a uh, senator from Maine named James Blaine, were at uh, loggerheads. It went ballot after ballot after ballot. No one could get the majority. Finally, after dozens of ballots, they agreed on a a third candidate who was acceptable to everybody, and that was James Garfield. Now, the problem was New York was the most populous state in the Union. 
incredibly important for the election. Republicans had to have New York. And so they, f- they felt like they had to throw Conkling a bone. They needed his support in the election. And they figured, all right, let's give the vice presidency to Arthur. This will be a sop to Conkling. Garfield is young. He's healthy. God knows the vice president doesn't do anything anyway. In fact, some people said he can do less harm as vice president than he was doing as <laughs> collector of the Custom House. Let's make it Chester Arthur um, vice president. And in fact, even though it was sort of a zero job, he was not actually that good at this zero job. He undermined the president in the first months, the president he was serving underneath. That's exactly what he did, because what happened was Conkling thought that as part of this deal for throwing his support behind Garfield in the election, that he would regain control of patronage at the Custom House. And instead, Garfield, from Conkling's perspective, double-crossed him and named uh, this guy Robertson. And... Conkling went nuts. He and the other senator from New York resigned in protest. And Chester Arthur, even though he was Garfield's vice president, he went to Albany to lobby for Conkling. He pushed Garfield to remove Robertson. So he was he was fulfilling the worst um, fears of people who were scared when he was named vice president that he would just bring this machine politics into the White House. Uh, and then that changes because uh, Garfield is shot. That changes everything. Garfield is shot by a disappointed office seeker um, who happened to be insane, but uh, it did once again focus attention on this whole issue of patronage and the spoil system, um, which reformers for about 10 years had been pushing to overhaul. So now Garfield is... Um, well, let me interrupt you for yeah. one second. The guy who shoots Garfield actually says Arthur's name, shoots Garfield, and then says what? That's right. He says, uh, I'm a stalwart, and that was the, the name of the Republican faction that controlled the machine in New York, and now Arthur will be president. So this was the worst possible thing that could have happened uh, from Arthur's perspective. I mean, I can't imagine a bigger challenge to um, sort of the political system or yeah. the authority. The optics the are not good. No. The optics are not good. Uh, and he didn't... Uh, he didn't die immediately. He lingered throughout the summer and suffered, and, and the newspapers were filled with all the ups and downs of his of his condition. And so while Garfield is lingering, um, describe, well, first of all, talk about the newspapers. How did Arthur is now reading coverage about himself, the prospective idea that he would be president, and what does that coverage say about Arthur? They say things like, uh, it's hard to imagine anybody in the country less qualified for this job than Chester Arthur. He would be the last choice, the New York Times says in an editorial um, the day after uh, Garfield was shot. If, if we could vote on this, in essence, this is the last guy that we would want to be president of the United States. Um, and then some people are suggesting that he had something to do with it. Um, which is incredible. Some papers are comparing him to Mary Surratt, the uh, boarding house owner, who was hanged for being a conspirator um, in the Lincoln assassination. And they say the evidence, the circumstantial evidence at least, is greater against Arthur and Conkling than it was against Mary Surratt, and we we hanged her. So, I mean, this is very um, vicious press coverage. How long did it take before people realized that Arthur had nothing to do with it? As the summer went on, the accusations that he'd had something to do with the crime faded away. But that did not change the fact that people thought he was totally unqualified, that he was a party hack, that he would bring the worst features of machine politics into the White House. Um, Which was a completely justified accusation at that point. Nothing he had done would have dispelled that accusation at all. Absolutely not. I mean, I have, there are a couple, the Chicago Tribune, for example, um, in talking about the prospect of Arthur taking the presidency, uh, called it, quote, a pending calamity of the utmost magnitude. 
uh, and The Nation, um, which existed then too, uh, the magazine, noted the widespread fear that, quote, a very obnoxious person named Conklin will run the government as he has long run the machine. So, I mean, people, people really thought that uh, what had been going on in New York was now going to go on at a national level. So uh, around the same time, uh, Arthur starts to receive letters from someone he doesn't know, someone he's never met before. Uh, her name is Julia Sand. Now, Lily, you actually saw these letters uh, preserved at the Library of Congress, right? Yeah, I did. So they're these absolutely amazing letters. And this is the moment, the sort of key powerful moment Mm -hmm. in Chester Arthur's story where everything starts to change. So Julia Sand is a single woman in her early 30s, and she lives on the Upper East Side of New York City. And she has this sort of horrible illness of the time, and which leaves her housebound. So she spends most of her days just reading the newspapers and following politics. She's basically watched Arthur's rise from, you know, kind of a local corrupt politician up to the vice presidency. At a time when women were not, there was no role for women to play in politics, she was a uh, political junkie. She read all the newspapers, knew a lot about Arthur, and seems to, judging from these letters, to have known about his earlier life when he was this idealistic lawyer who had helped to desegregate the New York streetcars. She asks him, uh, urges him to return to his better self. Right. So I wanted to just take a minute here for us to cut back to my interview with Michelle Kroll. Sure. Because... Michelle showed one of the very first letters that Julia Sand sent to Arthur, and it's just incredible. I mean, this woman ends up becoming like his conscience, a kind of nagging and persistent, but really passionate and optimistic and faithful conscience. So she writes to him, she says, The hours of Garfield's life are numbered. Before this meets your eye, you may be president. The people are bowed in grief. But do you realize it? Not so much because he is dying as because you are his successor. <laughs> I mean, you think, oh, my word. <laughs> you know? And then she, what president ever entered office under such circumstances so sad? The day he was shot, the thought rose in a thousand minds that you might be the instigator of the foul act. Is it not that a humiliation which cuts deeper than any bullet can pierce? Your best friend said Arthur must resign. He cannot accept office with such a suspicion resting upon him. And now your kindest opponents say Arthur will try to do us right, adding gloomily, he won't succeed, though. Making a man president cannot change him. And then she says, but making a new president can change him. At a time like this, if anything can, that can. Great emergencies awaken generous traits which have lain dormant half a life. If there's a spark of true nobility in you, now is the occasion to let it shine. And she goes on and on and on about she sees something decent and noble in, in, in Arthur and says, this is your moment to set yourself free. You know, this is almost like a, a new rebirth. Something in these letters struck him. She wrote um, two dozen more letters over the next several years, and he kept these letters from her. He put them, he put them in a special folder, and uh, he saved them. They were very meaningful to him. And we're talking about a time when uh, Arthur's wife is dead. Um, he's Everyone in the public life seems to doubt his ability to do the job. This is literally one person who writes to him to say, I believe in you, you can be somebody different than you are. Uh, and 
it's hard to know now, but what kind of impact did that have on him? He didn't write back, right? He didn't write back to the letters As at all. far as we know, he didn't write back. However, um, she was, as I mentioned, she was a political junkie. In, my, in many of the letters, she had very specific advice on pieces of legislation that he ended up following. Um, the other thing, uh, two other things suggest that she did have an impact. The first is that he paid her a surprise visit <laughs> once in the summer of uh, 1882, I believe. He just showed up at her doorstep to thank her for the letters and to talk to her. I mean, this is sort of, an, this is amazing. This is the President of the United States literally just pulling up in his carriage and saying, hi, I wanted to come <laughs> say hello. That was the first thing. The other thing is that at the end of his life, um, he seemed to be ashamed of, of his history before he was in the White House. And he called one of his custom, as he was lying, um, on his deathbed in essence, he asked one of his old custom house colleagues, a guy aptly named Jimmy Smith, <laughs> to come and burn all of his papers. And they filled three huge barrels of the papers and burned almost everything. But those letters were saved. Those letters are still in the Library of Congress. Wow. And so when he gets to be president, Arthur, I mean, uh, Garfield dies in the fall of 1881. Uh, Arthur's sworn in. How do we know? What's the first sign that he actually is different, that he's, he's taken a lesson from these months of uh, being beaten up in the press? Well, the first thing he does, which surprises people, is he wrote out a long um, list of, in essence, his legislative priorities. And he shocked everybody in that first message and said, one of the things I want Congress to do is to pass civil service reform. I mean, people couldn't believe it. Here's a guy who was the antithesis of civil service reform. He was exhibit A for why we needed it, and yet here he is calling for it. You know, we know the federal bureaucracy, and a lot of people are critical of the federal bureaucracy as it exists now. But it, the way that it existed then, the purpose of it, how did the federal bureaucracy work at that time? It had nothing to do, in essence, with doing the people's business. It was filled with people who had their jobs because of uh, their support for the party in power. It was the spoils system. So a, a party would come to power, and they would fill these federal jobs with their supporters. In fact, people, the people in office were required to make campaign contributions. Today, you know, we have all these rules about what sort of political involvement federal employees um, can have. Back then, they were required to. They literally would, the party um, officials would set up shop across the street from the custom house, and people would have to go over there and sign over a percentage of their salaries to the party. If they didn't do it, they were fired. <laughs> As you might imagine, people's uh, actual expertise for the jobs they were supposed to be doing was not a high priority. These people, most, most of them had no idea what they were doing. There were no civil service exams. There were no qualif minimum qualifications. Um, you had the job for as long as your party was in power, and your now. So now Arthur, who was the the king of this system, the, you know, the man who got to be president somehow because he rose through that system, is saying, "How how does he want to change it?" What, when he says civil service reform, what does that mean? Well, there had been a civil service reform bill that had been pending in the legislature, and it had just been sitting there. I mean, politicians on Capitol Hill weren't very any more eager to pursue it than than presidents or party bosses in New York. So it had been languishing, and he said, you know what, I have, um, at this point, early on, he said, I still have some reservations about the idea of competitive examinations. However, I do think we need some standards in place for, for qualifications. We need to just bring in people who know what they're doing. And also, I'm now against this system of what are called party assessments, which means um, these, con these mandatory contributions. This was a huge step, and people reform republic reform minded republicans were shocked that he did this 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 went against everything they expected from this guy um, it also means then that we end up right with career civil servants eventually because there's not exactly. complete turnover right. every time there's 
some right. Really to empowered. be fair, even if a person was capable, if there's this constant turnover, you're not really going to learn how to do your job. The civil service reform that he eventually signed the following year laid the groundwork for the system we have now, and, and um, it was gradually expanded to cover more federal jobs, and there were you know different rules and regulations were put into place. But it was. It was a very important moment. And, and well, I should say that, that during that first message, it did not, Congress did not pass that first year. The next year, after the 1882 elections, when Republicans were swamped, um, politicians uh, across the board decided, you know what, I think the, public, uh, the public's demand for this has gotten to the point where we can't ignore it anymore. And that's when the first civil service uh, rules were put into place. Arthur signed them. And not only did he sign them, he faithfully executed them. People at the time said, okay, it's nice that President Arthur signed these, but really a lot of the power for implementing these is going to reside in the White House. So we'll see what actually happens. He can sabotage these pretty easily if he wants to, but he didn't. He enthusiastically implemented these laws. So when we think about the modern government, I mean, Chester A. Arthur, we talked about him as an obscure president, but he created sort of the machinery of government that we've been relying on for the last hundred plus years. That's exactly right. He did. And I think he also, I think you could make the argument that he what he did laid the groundwork for the progressive activist presence who came after Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. I mean, these it's hard to imagine that the American people would have trusted the government to do anything, whether it was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, the trust busting or the, you know, uh, overseeing to make sure food and drugs were safe. All of these things, all of these responsibilities that even people who believe in limited government today would acknowledge are the legitimate and necessary responsibilities of the government, it's hard to imagine that the American people would have supported that if we still had a federal government just filled with party <laughs> hacks. <laughs> One of the things that historically is a stain on his record is his signing of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Which just, so for those who don't know, it was a bill that banned Chinese immigration to the U.S. for a decade. Obviously, that's something that has been a shame on America's record for, uh, you know, more than 100 years. Right. How did that come about? How did he come to sign that? Well, that was one of the specific pieces of legislation that Julius Sand urged him to veto, and he did veto it the first time. And Congress then had made it a little um, less restrictive and sent it back to him. People on the West Coast in particular felt like Chinese immigrants were taking their job. It was a very potent political issue and a difficult one for him. And just to explain the backdrop here is that a lot of Chinese immigrants had come over to help build the Western portions of the railroad. That's right. For, uh, you know, looking back, not, not his finest moment. However, in the political climate of the time, it would have been very, very difficult for him to veto that, and Congress probably would have overridden his veto. There was a tremendous amount of um, support for that bill. On a more positive note, one other thing that Arthur did um, was sort of lay the groundwork for a modern Navy. The U.S. Navy at that point was as, as corrupt and wasteful as the rest of the U.S. government. Um, so Arthur begins the reforms with things like the Naval War College, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and he did a lot to clean up the Navy's sort of incompetence and corruption and rebuild it. And we're, we're talking about preparing the country to be kind of a modern Navy and a, a world power in the next mm -hmm. few decades. Uh, and um, this this embrace of reform, civil service, good government. Did it cause any problems between Arthur and the machine people that had, the machine politicians had created him? Oh, it sure did, because the other thing that he did shortly after he became president, which convinced people that maybe he had changed, was that Conkling came to see him and said, you know what, okay, now you're president, time to put our guys in charge of the Custom House again. And Arthur said, you know what, I can't do that. And Conkling was enraged by this, had never forgave Arthur. In explaining this decision, he said, uh, for the vice presidency, I was indebted to Roscoe Conkling, but for the presidency, I'm indebted to God Almighty. 
So he saw that he that this what had happened with Garfield, this amazing sequence of events where he had gone from party hack to the most powerful office in the land, this had changed him. He realized that he had a greater responsibility. He now was president of the United States. He must have ended up rather alone. He ended up very alone. Uh, the reformers, despite some of the good things he did in terms of implementing civil service reform, never fully trusted him. And Conkling and the machine, they ended up despising him. So he was sort of stuck between two stools, as, as people said. He did the right thing, but it didn't really win him many friends. No one really loved him. So that is Chester Arthur's story. As we said, an amazing story of redemption. There's a nice little New York historical detail that we didn't squeeze in earlier, which is that the Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883 while Chester Arthur was president, and he was there to preside over its dedication ceremony. On a very personal note, my great-great-grandmother was there too. She was a 17-year-old Irish immigrant at the time, and she walked across the bridge on its opening day. Also, we should say that um, for a lot of Arthur's presidency, he knew he was dying. Uh, he was di- been diagnosed with something called Bright's disease, which is a not a disease. We, we don't call it by that name now. It's some kind of kidney ailment. But basically for a couple of years, Arthur had this painful condition, uh, which he concealed, uh, sort of in keeping with Victorian didn't state. Didn't tell anyone. Yeah, didn't tell anybody. Didn't tell anybody even close to him. Um, but he, he knew that it would end his life shortly. Uh, so he campaigns, uh, not very strongly, but campaigns for the re-election in 1884 and is not renominated. His party uh, nominated somebody else. Um, and so he sort of goes out rather alone. Um, he lived only a couple of years after leaving the White House, and he uh, died in 1886. Though he's alone, he does have one champion who he never loses, which is, of course, Julia Sand. And you'll remember how we started the episode talking about how few people today know anything about Arthur. Well, Julia never worried that that would be the case. She never thought he would be forgotten. Her only worry was whether he would be remembered poorly or he would be remembered well. And so we'll leave you with this letter that she wrote to him. Your name is now on the annals of history. You cannot slink back into obscurity if you would. A hundred years hence, schoolboys will recite your name in the list of presidents and tell of your administration. And what shall posterity say? It is for you to choose whether your record shall be written in black or in gold. For the sake of your country, for your own sake, and for the sakes of all who have ever loved you, let it be pure and bright. Very many thanks this week to David Farenthold, my colleague at The Post, to Scott Greenberger, the executive editor of Stateline, and of course to Michelle Kroll at the Library of Congress. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Westner, and of course you can always find us on Instagram and Twitter at presidential underscore WP. Next week, we reach the halfway point of the podcast. We also reach the presidency of Grover Cleveland, who is going to throw off all of our numbering for the rest of the series because of his two non-consecutive terms. Um, I mean, he also throws off the numbering for all of the American presidency for the rest of history. 
But my immediate concern is what I'm going to do and how annoying it's going to be when I say this is the 40th episode of Presidential, but it's not actually the 40th president. Anyway, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. And I will catch you next week for episode number 22. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to the Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash Constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.